in association with the SACE Europe Journal of Global Affairs, this is the Analyst Interview Project. I'm Matthew Schleich. Today, we're breaking the rules of the show. Rather than having on a pure analyst, we're interviewing an analyst that was also a former diplomat with a distinguished career at the United Nations. And I say we because I haven't gone it alone this week. I was joined by my two colleagues here at the journal, Christian Juarez and Katarina Lescovar, both co-executive editors of Submissions. And helping me out with the introduction is Christian himself. Thanks, Matt. I'm very excited to be joining you today. Last week, the three of us sat down with Professor Søren Jessen Peterson to discuss some of the current events involving migration in Europe. Katerina and I wanted to talk to him because we're taking his course on migration and security, but also because of his leadership experience at the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. We spoke with him to get his take on the recent developments in Ukraine and how it compares to some of the situations that he's worked on in the past. He then served as a director of the UNHCR Liaison Office at the UN headquarters in New York, all while serving as a High Commissioner's Special Envoy to the former Yugoslavia. From 1998 to 2001, Yesen Peterson served as the Assistant UN High Commissioner for Refugees, which he expected to be his final post at the United Nations. However, in 2004, Yesen Peterson was named the Special Representative of the United Nations Secretary General for Kosovo and headed its interim mission in Kosovo from 2004 to 2006. Today, Yesen Peterson is the James Anderson Adjunct Professor of Migration and Security Studies at Johns Hopkins SICE Europe. Thanks, Christian. We'll get rolling with the recording of the phone call. The uh, audio quality here is a bit spotty, but the conversation was fascinating nonetheless. We're going to play the chat in full, hence the longer episode this time around. This interview was recorded on April 9th, 2022. Given the fluidity of the Ukrainian conflict, events may have changed before the publishing of this podcast. I'll see you after the show. Um, so, Professor Yasin Peterson, we'd like to start off the interview um, by asking you about your professional experiences, particularly during your time as a director within the UNHCR and as the High Commissioner's Special Envoy to the former Yugoslavia. So, to begin, how would you characterize Europe's initial reaction and response to the influx of asylum seekers emerging from the Yugoslav wars? In the former Yugoslavia, yeah. Uh, well, uh, and uh, we will be talking a little later also on the situation in Ukraine. And, and let me say, different from the situation in Ukraine, um, the, uh, in former Yugoslavia, it was a fairly, quote-unquote, slow beginning because it started first with wars between Serbia and Slovenia only 10 days, then wars uh, Serb-Croats, uh, which lasted longer and already brought a lot of also displacement suffering. But it was really only about two years from the beginning of the first conflict uh, after the uh, declaration of independence by Bosnia, uh, that uh, displacement really uh, numbers, etc., suffering rose very quickly uh, and reached uh, uh, dimensions that uh, uh, we hadn't really prepared for. Uh, for that reason, in the summer of uh, 1992, July 1992, uh, UNHCR, uh, UN Commission of Refugees, uh, convened a meeting of governments uh, to uh, agree with governments how we address this new situation, which was getting worse by the day. And we in UNHCR put forward 
uh, a, a seven-point plan uh, where we uh, looked at assessments, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the points were to urge states outside the region to provide temporary protection. Because until then, and until the conflict really started Bosnia, those who were displaced in Serbia, Croatia, uh, stayed very much in the region because of the uh, links between uh, uh, families, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but with the Bosnian, uh, it also it developed into a uh, uh, more than regional situation, uh, a situation that covered uh, countries way beyond the region, Northern Europe, Southern, etc. And then it was important for us to appeal to governments to allow in those fleeing the conflicts in former Yugoslavia and provide temporary protection. Uh, that was uh, uh, the uh, uh, difference. Uh, initially, the response was positive, but uh, uh, as the conflict dragged on, it became more and more difficult and states started sort of uh, uh, losing a little bit their support. Professor, could you expand on the uh, comparison or the differences between Europe's response to the uh, uh, influx of refugees due to the Yugoslav crisis and due to the current Ukrainian crisis? Yes, uh, as I uh, mentioned, uh, the conflicts in former Yugoslavia uh, in terms of displacement uh, began uh, rather slowly uh, a couple of years uh, uh, before Bosnia's independence in 92. Displacement, yes, serious a lot, but it could be handled basically in the region of former Yugoslavia. Here, uh, the, uh, the displacement uh, refugee exodus started very, very soon after the Russian invasion and after the war began. Uh, already after a few days, we had tens of thousands, it immediately increased to hundreds of thousands. And, uh, and then, well, up to today, uh, six weeks after the start uh, of the war, all in all, 11 million displaced persons, of which 4 million refugees outside. Uh, the main difference, and that's why I talked about temporary protection in, uh, in 1992, temporary protection was, uh, came, the idea came from UNHCR. Here, it was the European Union, I think within five days of the start of the conflict, immediately urged member states to provide temporary protection, meaning allowing the refugees in and not going through an asylum uh, process determining whether they were in need of asylum protection or not. Uh, in uh, former Yugoslavia, the temporary protection aimed only came into action two years after the beginning of the first of the conflicts uh, and uh, was not an EU decision. It was UNHCR that urged states and then the EU and states agreed that uh, they would try to provide temporary protection. So the, uh, the, the way that Ukraine developed very suddenly, very fast, very quickly, and also the way that the EU then responded by uh, urging member states 
place to provide temporary protection uh, was uh, is a major difference and of course a very welcome difference because it in some ways addresses some of the uh, suffering uh, that the Ukrainians uh, are going through. I, I think uh, connecting to how, you, I believe you had kind of touched on this on your answer to a question a bit earlier um, on the tail end of receptiveness to uh, refugees coming out of the Balkans. Uh, do you believe that asylum fatigue will arise in the case of Ukraine as it did in 2015 when Europe experienced the massive wave of migrants, asylum seekers, and refugees? And how do you think that that was similar perhaps to your experience to asylum fatigue if it happened in the 90s? Well, I think starting with the last point first, uh, I think uh, in the case of the former Yugoslavia, uh, there was an initial response uh, after the start of the conflict in Bosnia uh, and the displacement of both Bosniaks, Bosnian Muslims, Bosnian Serbs, Bosnian Croats. Uh, so the, their temporary protection was granted, but not on the basis of an EU decision and states outside the region of former Yugoslavia uh, responded differently and quite a few of them even before the conflict in Bosnia came to a formal end with the Dayton Peace Agreement. There were already states coming to UNHCR and say, ah, we know that there is some kind of peace in parts of Bosnia. We would like to go ahead and, uh, and uh, return in the refugees. And we were urging them not to do so. Uh, so it was only after the Dayton Agreement uh, and the return slowly opening up uh, that the uh, state started to insisting on return. Uh, then the difference between 15 and 16 is, is very simple. This was not one group of refugees, uh, easy to define. Uh, they, came, uh, they didn't come from either the territory of former Yugoslavia or now from Ukraine. They came from all over the world, uh, and therefore coming up with a united political response uh, was difficult. Secondly, it also happened very fast, uh, and uh, there were no guidance coming from Europe, uh, EU. EU was divided, uh, messed up the response. Member states acted on their own, some closing borders, other opening borders orders to total, total chaos and a very massive response. Whereas today, it is an easily defined group. Uh, the objective conditions calling for refugee status are to most countries very, very clear. And also that prompted the EU to immediately uh, 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 decide that temporary protection was uh, should be given uh, immediately without state determination. So it's, it's in many ways three different situations. And uh, I would certainly uh, hope uh, and prefer that the response now would introduce the whole idea of temporary protection. And if in future there are crises at the level of the Syrians, uh, now the Ukrainians, that temporary protection will be given 
uh, and not discriminate between various groups, various nationalities, etc. Um, furthering on that point, uh, was there equal treatment and reception with respect to all groups of asylum seekers uh, fleeing the conflicts in the Balkans? Yes, yes and no. Uh, I think, I mean, first of all, let me be clear, because I saw sort of with my experience in UNHCR, uh, there is no discrimination on the basis of nationalities. Uh, uh, it is very clear because UNHCR is, like states, bound by respecting international conventions, human rights conventions, refugee conventions, equality of treatment based on the individual's situation, whether uh, he or she is, is uh, a, uh, a Syrian or uh, a Congolese, Ukrainian, uh, or a uh, Croat, it's exactly the same approach that should be applied in accordance with international human rights and international refugee law. Obviously, the uh, role of international organizations is incredibly complicated in, in conflict situations, but I wanted to get your opinion. What do you believe the role of multilateral and international organizations should be in ensuring the equal treatment of all asylum seekers? Well, I mean, international organizations, let's talk now about the UN. The UN is an organization of 193 member states, and it is certainly based on the principles also of equality. Uh, that's clear also in accordance with the UN Charter. However, it is member states, and we see it right now in the UN Security Council, it is member states that determine the political action uh, and unfortunately, I should say, as a, a former humanitarian uh, worker, uh, it is not humanitarian organization. For humanitarian organizations, there is no difference. They look only at the needs of the persons, irrespective of whether uh, of nationality. The needs, uh, both the objective conditions, the subjective conditions, but based on needs. Whereas the political institutions look at national interests, uh, at state interests, and that is a reason why, for example, the Security Council of the UN is sadly, tragically unable to take any decisive action on stopping the conflict in Ukraine or to go a few months back to prevent the conflict. So uh, for humanitarians, no need, uh, no difference, uh, because it's based on what uh, also in migration status we call human security, where the states in the Security Council look at it first and primarily on the basis of, unfortunately, their own national interest and not in the interest of their mandate or what they should do, look at uh, the, the interest of peace and security, irrespective of the individual political interest. 
So there is a big conflict, and unfortunately, the humanitarian workers organizations depend on political action to prevent conflicts, uh, causing displacement, or resolve conflicts that have caused displacement so that a solution can be found also to the humanitarian suffering. Without the political action, humanitarian organizations uh, can only provide emergency assistance and that they do irrespective of nationalities, uh, etc., only on the basis of the humanitarian needs. And as we see now in Ukraine, the humanitarian needs, the humanitarian stuff is uh, uh, what, colossal. Uh, building on the subject of uh, humanitarian needs, one of the most heartening responses in support of the Ukrainian people has been seen through the massive fundraising efforts that have been earmarked for Ukrainian humanitarian aid. Um, however, as we discussed in your course, uh, such efforts also reveal the imbalance of funding available for responses to concurrent global humanitarian crises. Uh, what actions can multilateral organizations take to alleviate such institutional factors which hinder equitable operations? Well, first of all, I mean, uh, the significance difference between what's happening in Ukraine and uh, causing refugee uh, uh, exodus and also internal displacement. Contrary to uh, previous conflicts of that significance, that uh, level in terms of numbers and all that, uh, we all know what's going on. You see it almost second by second. Some of the worst violations, you see it, where there's just 30 years ago, uh, in former Yugoslavia, there were reporters on the ground, but there were not as now a minute-to-minute -minute report on what was actually going on. Uh, so that is uh, also the reason, and, and if I can just say, we don't have TV uh, moving around in uh, uh, Congo, uh, or moving around in Afghanistan, uh, Myanmar in Yemen, reporting minute to minute, day to day, what's going on, how people are suffering, being displaced, their human rights violated. So that's a big difference. The pictures are coming in. When you then want to do something, you support it. The international organizations uh, are exactly up against that problem because uh, even if the numbers of the Ukrainian refugees have now reached record numbers well, all over the world, there are about 80 million already who are displaced, and now adding another 11 million or so. But the other 80 million uh, are basically in countries in the global south, uh, very little attention, certainly very little media coverage. So all the international organizations can do as they do on a daily basis. Yes, use the, uh, which sounds a little uh, unfortunate, but use the current prices in Ukraine. Nobody can be ignorant of what happens now. Use that for fundraising with the risk that all the funding goes into one situation, ignoring 
as we have seen many times before, all the other needs in other parts of the world. So I know from my own background that uh, uh, staff in the UN humanitarian organization, NGOs and all that, are working daily, trying to keep all the other crises on the agenda, trying to raise funding. But just over the last three, two, three, four weeks, there have been two flexion conferences. One, trying to mobilize funding for the very, very difficult situation in Afghanistan. Uh, less than 50% of the needs assessed by uh, the UN, less than 50% uh, were raised. Uh, then there was another pledging conference uh, on Syria, where incidentally, we are also talking about 11 million displaced, but that's over a period now of 11 years, actually. Uh, and there again, um, no, sorry, not Syria, the pledging conference was on Yemen, where there are about more than 2 million displaced persons. On Yemen, the pledging conference uh, provided only 20% of the needs. So there you have it. And uh, I remember my time with UNHCR when we had the crisis in former Yugoslavia, we got a lot of funding, more than what we could use, while we were underfunded in Africa and other parts of the world. And sometimes we actually asked the donor who were coming in, maybe for the fourth, fifth time with funding for a former Yugoslavia, say that's very good of you and all that. Is there any way that we could sort of suggest we move some of that funding? Because we were not only funded, we were overfunded and move it to situations in Africa or other parts of the world. So organizations try, they work very hard, uh, but uh, you cannot, you cannot drive donor response uh, more than sort of just appealing and, uh, and then telling them, reminding them of needs in other parts of the world. But uh, it is a very difficult situation. Thank you, Professor. On a different note, um, I kind of want to talk about something that I remember from class. Personally, one of the most memorable points you made in your class was uh, based on the optimism that you felt when describing the future of migration and migration policy. Um, can you elaborate on this and explain to us why you expect this area will improve? Yeah, well, what I did say in our very first class where I was sort of given an overview on what we were going to cover over the next 13 weeks, uh, I did express a degree of, yes, optimism that uh, that the populist political parties in Europe, elsewhere, US, uh, were running out of steam. Uh, and, uh, and my view was that whereas populism sort of certainly uh, was very prominent following the uh, during and following the refugee and migration crisis in Europe in 2015 and 16, by 2018 or so, the political agenda, elections during from 2010 right up to 1670, including Brexit in 2016, already all had 
immigration on top of the political agenda, driven by populist political parties. In 2018, there were elections to the EU Parliament, and there was a concern that populist political parties in Europe would again uh, move forward, increase their support. That did not happen because meanwhile, by 2018, uh, climate change had moved on, on, uh, on the agenda and was very often top of the agenda. Then a uh, little later, 2000, we got the pandemic, so health issues moved up and, and, and immigrant migration moved down and didn't play the decisive role that it had played in many elections, uh, 2010, 12, 15, 16, as I say, including Brexit. But now, unfortunately, just over the last couple of days, we have seen developments that, to me, would also suggest that clearly they are not, the populist parties are not running out of steam. Because in Hungary, clearly anti-immigration was on top of the agenda, without any doubt, because it was used constantly uh, by the Prime Minister Orban. Uh, and uh, we also see now that anti-immigration, uh, unfortunately, once again, uh, is very prominent in the French elections. And what we are seeing there is exactly the same that has happened in other European countries. For these elections, even, even people, uh, sorry, political parties, let's say in the center, uh, maybe a little bit to the left of the political center, they start moving over to the political right, uh, start compromising their statements also on migration policies in order to make sure uh, that they also uh, get some of the votes that would go to the populist political parties. We are seeing that clearly now President Macron uh, are increasingly very, very negative on a lot of migration issues because he is losing ground to the declared anti-immigration party of Marine Le Pen. So uh, I'm seeing, and then again with developments and now in, uh, in uh, late to populist political parties is for the whole issue of autocracy. And I think it's not wrong to say that the war in, uh, in, uh, in Ukraine is also a war between liberalism and uh, autocratic uh, regimes. So the optimism I had uh, have now uh, sort of dampened a little bit on my side following seeing what happened in Hungary, not only that the, the autocratic prime minister won, but he uh, won uh, uh, big in uh, Ukraine, and also seeing that the differences in France, for example, where between the populist Le Pen and, and uh, Macron uh, is narrowing, and then with the war, where really what is happening, what people are fighting for, what people are dying for in Ukraine is freedom. And it is freedom to be European, part of liberal democracies, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and therefore, again, uh, the outcome uh, on what's happening 
in Ukraine right now, uh, including on the massive refugee displacement situation, is very much a matter of are we choosing freedom or are we choosing the kind of autocracy that we are seeing. So I'm not that optimistic. I hope, evidently, as almost everybody would hope, uh, that uh, the war in Ukraine uh, in, uh, concludes as a, uh, uh, a uh, confirmation that freedom is what we all want and that eventually again in future political elections in Europe that we will focus on climate change, on still dealing with the pandemic and with growing politically, uh, economic insecurity and all those aspects uh, and not using migration uh, and migrants uh, as a scapegoat for economic difficulties. Yeah, I do think it's important to contextualize the fact that you had this belief several months ago when uh, the course began. Um, and given the recent developments with Ukraine, um, do you mainly attribute this change in belief to be caused by the situation in Ukraine? Or do you attribute it mostly to uh, domestic politics in Europe? Or is it maybe both? Or do you see other factors to this as well? No, I think it is a bit of, I think it is a bit of both. As I said earlier, uh, I mean, a very big difference between the war in Ukraine and other conflicts like in Syria, uh, going further back, former Yugoslavia 30 years ago, um, that this one is transmitted directly into our homes, onto our screens, 24 hours a day. So nobody can be in doubt of what's happening. Nobody. Uh, and uh, then the very, very, uh, well, let me use the word generous reception. All receptions should be generous. But here, the fact that the states which have been most critical of EU's attempt over the last five, 10 years of coming up with a common comprehensive migration asylum policy. This has constantly been uh, opposed by the so-called Visegrad countries, uh, Poland, Slovakia, uh, Czech uh, uh, Republic, uh, and Hungary. Constantly opposed. These are the countries now in the forefront, open borders, welcoming, uh, immediately inviting in uh, Ukrainians, etc. The hope that somebody like me would have is that this way of receiving refugees uh, reminds all of us that when we talk about displacement, whether they're internally displaced or refugees, what we're seeing on TV right now or on the social media is happening every day to Syrians, to Yemenites, to Congolese, to uh, Ethiopian displaced refugees, etc. And that one can use that. So rather than uh, seeing the response to the Ukrainian as a specific response to a specific situation, see it as a guide on how we should move forward 
in developing more humane uh, refugee and migration policies. Uh, that, I think, is the opportunity, uh, hoping, and that's one of the other reasons that countries are receiving the Ukrainians with open hearts, open homes, open houses, etc., is, of course, uh, that the Ukrainians are very clear they want to go back. The sooner the better. Actually, a few are already returning right now. This is, of course, where we have the challenge. Uh, I still believe, based on uh, 30 years of work with uh, refugees, that essentially all refugees want to go back, return to their own place. And I also know that if they have been away for five, 10 years, uh, the conflict's still ongoing, uh, it, uh, it may be a, a difficult prospect. But I hope we can learn a lot from the response to Ukraine and that we can push uh, government leaders, political parties uh, to understand all human beings have to be treated equally, irrespective of where they come from, and not have specific arrangements, specific protection arrangements for a specific group. That's very good, we do it, but that should apply to everybody. And we do that, it's too early to say, but I hope there's an opportunity. So a little bit, uh, Christian, I'm back to the optimism that I expressed two weeks ago, but seeing what's happening right now in Ukraine, it is difficult to be optimistic, but I hope in the medium and longer term, that we can use this opportunity. But meanwhile, people are paying an unbelievable price uh, for this uh, madness, insanity that we are seeing. I think to close the interview on a, again, a forward thinking question, uh, as special representative of the UN Secretary General in Kosovo and head of the UN interim administration mission in Kosovo, you have written extensively on the challenges which arose during peacekeeping and peacebuilding efforts. Um, what parallels, if any, do you see arising um, in post-conflict Ukraine? Yeah, I think I think this is again, uh, as I have said many times, it is a, a very different situation. First of all, this is a war. Uh, it is a war. Uh, and not sort of the internal kind of conflict we have seen over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, it is also a war, as we, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, where the UN Security Council is divided, uh, where uh, regions of the world, governments within regions of the world are divided on the causes of the conflict and therefore on the response. Because in Kosovo, there was at the time basically agreement, or there was agreement in the UN uh, to uh, establish the uh, uh, United Nations mission that I led in, uh, in Kosovo for two years. There was a clear mandate what that mission should do. Uh, and therefore, on the basis of a unanimous decision by the, by the UN Security Council, on the basis of the mandate given to the mission, it was very clear what UNMEG as a mission, and, and I as a special representative 
administrator uh, should do uh, and could do. Uh, it was also very clear what the end of the mission in principle should be. That should be the moment that a political decision was taken to determine the status of Kosovo. That was unfortunately also the moment where the unity that had existed while I was there and where I had support from all uh, governments, uh, but that unity, when then it uh, came to the status uh, determination, uh, then broke down. But I'm saying this because what you need in also situations in Ukraine, you need a political decision to end the conflict. That decision the, should ideally then end in a mandate on how to rebuild uh, Ukraine, rebuild, I mean, from trauma, uh, etc., but also destruction, uh, rebuilding physical infrastructures. That should be based on a clear mandate so that those moving in to support the Ukrainian government uh, have a clear mandate on what to do. So in the case of Ukraine, we will not have a peace building because that has already been very, very clear. Peace building mission requires that the five permanent members of the UN Security Council agrees to uh, establish a peacekeeping operation with a clear mandate again. And one of the parts of such a mandate would be, for example, the protection of civilians. We will not have a peace build, uh, peacekeeping operation in Ukraine. Uh, the peace building uh, will have to take its lead from the kind of end to the conflict that we hopefully will see. And it is most likely that such a peace building effort will be evidently and should be led by Ukraine. And the support will be coming rather than the, from the UN, from in this case, the European Union, uh, the European Bank for Reconstruction based in London, uh, plus from bilateral donors, etc. So it will be a different setup uh, without peacekeeping, but hopefully we get an end to war that will give a clear mandate to how, uh, with the Ukrainian government in charge, how the rebuilding of Ukraine, which of course will be massive, uh, almost at the level of the martial aid that uh, came to Europe after the Second World War, and with the impact of that, as we are aware of, but in terms of magnitude of needs, uh, complexity of the task, etc., uh, I think that there is only one thing that's clear. Ukraine, government of Ukraine would be in charge, but how then regional organizations get involved, uh, again, uh, depends on a mandate, including a mandate that will come from the Ukrainian government, what they need and, and all that. So you cannot use, unfortunately, previous experiences. Uh, there are a lot of commonalities if you look at all the previous, uh, where, as I say, a clear mandate, uh, which would clearly define what should be done by who and by how, uh, and, and how. That we will not have here. Uh, but the contours 
of a setup and peace building will certainly be around that. Southern Ukraine chat, support mainly from European institutions, bilateral donors, non-governmental organizations, etc. etc. But all that depends on how the war will end, when it will end, how it will end. And there we unfortunately do not know. Okay, see you later. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's it for today. Thank you again to Professor Yesen Pedersen for a great conversation and a huge thank you to Christian and Katarina for pulling my way this episode. The Analyst Interview Project is a series of ongoing interviews with subject matter experts of contained topics within conflict management and strategy. Are you an analyst? Do you want to talk specifics? Drop me a line at Matthew Schleich on Twitter. It's at M-A-T-T-H-E-W-S-C-H-L-E-I-C-H. The SICE Europe Journal of Global Affairs is a graduate student-run organization at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. The journal publishes peer-reviewed articles for policymakers, academics, and professionals kindly given me some space for this project. For more information, visit the journal online at SiceJournal.eu. That's S-A-I-S-J-O-U-R-N-A-L dot E-U.